Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Denise Chisholm, Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, joins us again today to share her perspectives on the markets and the sectors you need to pay attention to right now. Investors are paying close attention to what the inverted yield curve says about the trajectory of the economy. Denise unpacks this today with host Catherine Black, Director of Sales Enablement, noting that when looking at history, in hindsight, a yield curve inversion does predict a recession, but that recession has historically happened between six months to four years from the inversion. Also discussed today are geopolitics, bond markets, the economic cycle being driven by bank lending, and the topic of consumer sentiment. Denise also looks at various sectors, including a big focus right now on energy, financials, and consumer discretionary. This podcast was recorded on August 18th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So to kick things off, we're gonna talk about the yield curve, but just to ensure that our audience is with you, can you touch on what the yield curve typically means for investors and why so many lean on it when allocating capital? Yeah, let's definitely talk about what the yield curve is mathematically, then what investors think it means, and then whether or not it actually holds some sway from a predictability for markets. So one, the yield curve is just a differential between rates somewhere at the long end of the curve, meaning between five and 10 years, and then rates somewhere at the shorter end of the curve between you know three months and two years. So you can hear twos, tens spreads. Sometimes you talk about tens, ones. Sometimes people talk about three months to tenure. There's a lot of different ways to measure it. But in some ways, people think, and I say think because it's not clear that it actually bears itself out in the data, that it has a lot of sway from an economic perspective because really all economic cycles are driven by bank lending. And the way banks make money is by lending, is by borrowing short and by lending long. So if there is a difference or a spread between how they borrow and how they lend, they make money and can lend more to you. So there is certainly a lot of theory around that being one of the big drivers in terms of the overall economy. And I'm not here to say that that doesn't have any meaning, but I am here to say that usually it's not the best indicator or the only indicator when you think about it from an economic growth perspective. And the reason is we can go back in history and look at the amount of times that the yield curve inverted. And clearly, in hindsight, it's had a 100% track record of predicting a recession. But the problem is the timing based on that recession varies somewhere between six months and four years. So that's a very wide range. So you're right, but being right four years from now might not be helpful for the next year's investments. So the way you can think about whether or not it actually helps you from an equity market investor point of view is let's look at all the rolling 12-month 
periods after any kind of yield curve inversion, taking you know maybe four or five different yield curves and say, okay, what's my average total return in the market the year following a yield curve inversion? Mm -hmm. And it's almost 10%. That's so, incredible. Sorry, 10%. That's incredible. I don't think most people can see through those 12 months, though. That's, that's quite challenging for them. I think that that's the issue, is that you have to take a longer-term time horizon and be concerned less about the wiggles and the day-to-day -day in the market and think about it. Am I going to change? One, are you going to change your investments over the next week or month? And two, if you're not, if you're willing to look over the next year, are you certain that this indicator is as predictive as you're willing to bet your investments on? And the way I look through the data is even in my PA, you know, from that perspective, like the yield curve, it's just not enough to me. It's not robust enough of a predictive indicator to say, okay, this is going to change my entire methodology and the way I think about investing in the markets. That's completely fair. And so, you know, it's interesting you say your own PA. Maybe we'll just touch on know where you are placing money currently in in the market because you know if if you're looking at the inversion of the yield curve where does that make you put your money to work then today yeah it's interesting in some ways i've developed this investment discipline that i follow early for me <laughs> right so in some ways when i started at the in the industry in 1999 at fidelity i heard a lot of portfolio managers talk about what they thought about the market but a lot of times when i went back and looked at the data it didn't meet my individual denise chisholm's hurdles for where i want to put money to work mm -hmm. and a lot of the indicators that i'm seeing now actually do have a positive risk reward for equities overall if you're willing to look over the next year i've certainly talked through that many of the webcasts that I've been in, and it's still predictive right now, even after the rally off the lows. I still see an opportunity in equities for all of the reasons we can talk about, we have talked about, and all the dislocations I see in the market. Absolutely. So as you've alluded to, you know, there's a lot of bear, bears out there, if you will, and you tend to be the lone bull in the room, it seems. So what predictive indicators are you looking at that are making you bullish right now? Yeah, it, do, it does definitely seem that way. And again, I started at Fidelity in 1999. It's very, I, I can't remember another time where equity market investors weren't almost naturally bullish. So I did have a, a PM come see me and they said, you know, we're trying to get the other side of the story because, you know, we're all very concerned about the stickiness of inflation and the Federal Reserve and what this all means. And we all kind of find ourselves, you know, into that bearish or defensive tilt. And we're really looking for somebody to articulate the other side. And he said, Denise, I can't find anybody. So you have to do it. <laughs> so I came to the meeting and I listed them. The way I sort of think about it is I'm going to give you seven of the indicators that I'm leaning on. I'm not going to name all seven here because I'll rattle them off too fast. And then the bearish arguments that I find don't have sway when I think through market history. And so I'll go through a couple here, many of which we talked about. But one of the things that I leaned on during the pandemic was valuation spreads. And that's basically a differential between highly valued stocks and lowly valued stocks. It's just a difference between the two. And in some ways are an expression of fear in the market when investors sell anything they think is risky and they buy anything they think is safe. The names change every single cycle. But usually that's an extreme expression of fear that you, if you are an investor willing to look through what any potential bottom could be, usually creates opportunities over a one year time horizon. We saw it in the pandemic. We're seeing it now. And that's confirmed 
in the same way that it was confirmed during the pandemic by defense on a sector perspective being expensive. So if I group together what I call the you know, defensive sectors of the market, consumer staples, healthcare, utilities, and the old telecommunication services, that basket of sectors is usually a helpful way to think about you know, how the market is fearful because, you know, investors sort of gravitate towards safe stocks because you tend to buy toothpaste, you tend to go to the doctor, you tend to turn the lights on and pay your cable bill, you know, when times are tough, but you don't really necessarily buy that new iPhone or buy the bank loan. So defense is very expensive, so much so that it's only been expen this expensive, more expensive than this, 4% of the time in history. You put those two things together, we have a very fearful equity market that has very strong predictive odds. Now let's go through at least two of the bear cases. One, inflation, and then two, the Federal Reserve, which we'll tackle in a second. Inflation, stripping out recessions that you've seen during an inflationary period, because it really only increases your odds from let's call it 10 percentage points 10% probability of seeing a recession to only 20. So your base case still, even in high inflationary environments, is that the economy is going to expand. So stripping that out, stripping recessions out, looking back through history and saying, okay, given the four quartiles of inflation, when inflation is high or low, what are my average equity market returns over one year time horizon? Meaning, is inflation a predictive indicator in the equity market when we're not in a recession? the returns are all the same in those quartiles, meaning that if you as an equity market investor are saying it's different this time because of inflation, then that's probably not enough. And then there we go to the Federal Reserve where you say, okay, well, the Fed is going to have to raise rates more than it ever has to quash inflation. And when you look historically, that argument sort of ebbs away as well. When you see what the Federal Reserve has had to do to increase the odds beyond 50-50 of a contractionary situation in the U.S. economy the year following a, a, a Federal Reserve rate hike. So what you'll find is like 350 basis points during any one year time horizon. Really, that's what's needed to flip your odds in terms of your base case being a contraction versus an expansion. We're not likely to get there, especially given where inflation expectations are right now. And as much as the Federal Reserve might have to raise more and go higher, it's, it's going to be a, a step down in the second derivative, meaning that yes, they might raise 350 basis points over this year, but only 100 maybe over the next year. And that slowdown, that's the pivot that people are really talking about it, that's the mathematical change for equity market investors. It's that not that interest rates can't ever go up, it's that the problem was they were going up too far too fast. Those mm -hmm. odds going forward are now diminishing. So mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the bear arguments don't stand up to a historical lens. And what I'm seeing in the market are very strong predictive indicators of opportunity. Right. So that's where we're seeing probably the outlook tapering from 75, maybe down to 50 basis points as the next hike, instead of being so aggressive. That makes complete sense. So you yeah. talked about the bear market there, and you've touched on a few sectors that, you know, defense you're staying away from. Can you talk about, and I know you've spoken about this before, consumer discretionary and some of your other favorite sectors for our audience here today? Yeah, I see such opportunity in consumer discretionary from a mathematical perspective, and it's it's going to be difficult to get fundamental investors' arms around that. 
because in a lot of ways, the stocks can discount bad news that goes on for even a year. Uh, and that's really what I'm seeing in my quantitative indicators right now. I mean, it, it was shocking when I presented it to portfolio managers, but in the, the relative performance of the consumer discretionary sector over the prior, I think it was nine months, has only been worse 1% of the time historically. So when you think about, you know, the market is a discounting mechanism and you know that it can often look through bad news. We just saw the pandemic where you discounted one of the steepest, sharpest recessions in U.S. history in a month. So when you think about, well, we couldn't have possibly discounted a recession, think about that with consumer discretionary. It's only been worse all the way back to 1962, less than 1% of the time. So clearly what we have is a situation where just that in and of itself, we know that the consumer discretionary sector has very strong mean reverting tendencies over time. But you also see those valuation spreads wide in the consumer discretionary sector. And here it's wide, not just on earnings, but book. So when you see wide valuation spreads on earnings, that's a lot like a mathematical way of saying, hey, people are worried about profitability. And that usually that worry that creates an opportunity. When you see valuation spread on book, this is a fancy mathematical way. It's really people are worried about solvency. Are you going to be in business a year from now? And usually that is really the worry that has very strong odds about performance. You're only seeing that in the consumer discretionary sector. And then finally, what I think is really interesting is that all the sentiment indicators that we're seeing being at rock bottom levels are usually also the opportunity statistically with 100% historic odds of consumer sentiment being at these levels where consumer discretionary actually outperforms. And if you think through the math where, well, Denise, but, you know, consumer discretionary, their earnings are really going to struggle over the next year. And in some ways, you, you saw some of that in the first two quarters of this year. The math behind it is usually that if there is a peak in earnings that we have seen, and I think it peaked from uh, from my recollection around February, that tends to last about a year, meaning that the consumer discretionary average earnings, let's call it a mini recession for at least that sector, is about a year. But the stocks on average discount at nine months in advance on average. So when you look back, if you just say, okay, we know that earnings peaked in February. Okay, let's give it 13 months even. They go through till next March. Let's back that forward six to nine months. When is the bottom in consumer discretionary stocks? When does that fit? Right around now. So Mm -hmm. you'd see even your bearish argument of earnings are going to be a lot worse doesn't really give you a lot to go on in terms of a sell signal. But this is it's a very uncomfortable situation for equity market investors, much like energy coming out of the pandemic. This is going to be a very volatile sector. I was going to say, that's always a tough question that we get is, is where does energy fit into all this picture right now? Because we've really oh. seen a rebound in that sector. In some ways, consumer discretionary reminds me a lot of energy Mm -hmm. going back to 2020 because there is an extreme opportunity, at least what I see in the data. And so from that perspective, I'd re-rank all of my stack orders from consumer discretionary, I think, being one of my top interests. And then I'd I'd put financials right after it because Mm -hmm. of the strong valuation support. And then, look, I still do think that energy is a really strong risk reward here. I think it's got very strong valuation support. I don't think it needs crude oil to go up or to go back to the highs to actually outperform. Look, expect it to be volatile. It's a high beta stock. It's a high beta sector. But I think that what we're seeing is that the leadership in the U.S. market is likely to change. 
if the leadership coming out of the pandemic lows was really energy and to a lesser extent materials, what you're saying is that could shift. Where your top two sectors are your leadership, I don't think energy is going to be your bottom two sectors. I don't think it's going to be the laggard, but I think it's going to be more in the muddy middle, where I think that you're going to get more opportunity at the tails in sectors like consumer discretionary and potentially financials as well. Absolutely. And you've mentioned financials a couple times now, and, and some would think that that's an interesting play because they'll look at rates and associate that mm-hmm. to the financial sector. You mentioned valuations are what's driving your interest in that. Maybe just to touch on quickly, you know, the case for financials that you're seeing. Yeah. So let's talk about valuation and then let's definitely talk about rates. And I think that the problem associated with putting macro factors ahead and making it your key point of investment decisions. So valuation is really interesting in the sense that I think it gives you a floor. I mean, financials haven't been, hasn't been a good sector, but it hasn't been a horrific sector either with all of the recessionary risk you're seeing. I think what that tells you as an investor is that there is real downside protection because relative price to book is in its bottom decile of history. That gives you really strong odds of a market advance, really strong average returns over the next year. We certainly haven't seen that yet. And part of the concern has been recessionary risk and in some ways rates where a lot of investors that we have here is, look, financials were the ultimate rate rate play. Rates went up and they still didn't work. So clearly, if rates are done going up and they might be done going up, if we have a recession, et cetera, et cetera, then financials aren't going to work. And I think that the answer to that is always be careful when you're dealing with macro variables, what the underlying correlation and real driver is. And the real driver in financials throughout the cycles has been credit spreads. Credit spreads have been correlated to yields, to higher yields. Usually when rates go up, it's a reflection of growth. Growth is good. Credit spreads go down. So you usually see higher yields and lower credit spreads. We did not see that this time. Higher yields were in some ways implicit in recession risk because the Fed is going to have to raise too fast because inflation is too high. The Fed's behind the curve. So what we saw was credit spreads increase. Credit spreads are more important than yields to the extent that yields are flat, potentially go down, but credit spreads come in, which is what we're starting to see now, to the extent that inflation is peaked, usually that shifts your odds of credit spreads coming off the boil, that could actually be the potential catalyst for financials. And we could look back a year from now and be like, I don't understand, rates didn't do anything, rates didn't go anywhere, but financials were one of the best sectors in the market. This is why, because credit's more important than yields. That makes complete sense. Well, Makes sense, but yet it's interesting how it maybe does not. We're actually going to pivot because we have a question here around geopolitics. So they're currently front and center in different parts of the world. So to what extent do you pay attention to these? And are there certain areas such as supply constraints that advisors should look out for? Yes. So let's talk about geopolitics statistically, and then let's talk about supply constraints. So geopolitics statistically, not impressive as a single variable driver. In fact, like when you look at decades of you know data, what you'll find is the times during the most wars or the most geopolitically unstable decades were actually the higher returns versus our relative peace that we could sort of quasi-measure over the last 10 years. So it shows you, and I think that everybody's seen the research once we saw Russia invade Ukraine, that, well, usually these things are not the bigger driver. 
that can be correlated to things that are big drivers like energy. Energy is absolutely a big driver and can in and of itself cause recession risk. We just haven't been there yet, right? So the way I think through geopolitics and if this is gonna cause a really big problem is to think of its transmission mechanism and that is without a doubt in crude oil. So crude oil even at 120 was still in the US, and we can talk about Europe in a second, in the US at very low levels of energy goods and services as a percentage of disposable income. And at half the level that we saw during the recessionary times in the 70s and 80s. So which is not to say that energy is not important, it's just not important enough to the US consumer, even at these prices, to destroy demand. The Europe is in a little bit of a different situation, although what you can find is that statistically crude oil hasn't been as correlated to destruction and demand, meaning that it's gone up and up over time. That said, even with Europe in recession, and we have this data going back to the European debt crisis in the, in the early aughts or in the 2010s, 2011 and 2013, was it enough to get the U.S. in a recession, which is that's when your then your case flips for overall global or U.S. equity markets. And really, even at that time, Europe in a recession wasn't enough to shift the U.S. in a recession. And I'm not really sure that it's going to be different this time. So with that as sort of the geopolitical transmission mechanism, now remind me, what was the second question? There was a second question. If there would be any supply constraints. So I think that that's important as we think through what has happened during the pandemic and whether or not that's sticky. And you can all measure it based on the surveys that we have. And I think Philly Fed and, and supply delivery, delivery times just came out. And we're sort of back to pre-pandemic levels, which is not to say that everything is back and normalized, but the second del derivative has really come in strong. Remember, inflation is a year-on-year -year change. So now we have a lot of headwinds coming at that year-on-year -year change. One is government spending, which is contracted on a year-on-year -year basis now. Obviously, we have higher rates. We have a stronger dollar. And supply chains are getting better at an increasing rate. So just remember, from an equity market perspective, you don't necessarily need to get back to normal, but it needs to get better than it was last year to see the headwinds come for inflation. I think that that's exactly what we're seeing in a lot of the data that I measure. So fascinating, especially all the implications that these have on one another. So we have, we've just talked about energy. I know that that's where you are seeing some outperformance, some opportunities. I, on the other side, we have tech, which has been caught in the crosshairs, if you will. Do you maybe just touch on what your thoughts are on that sector, maybe the growth stocks in general, and are there any unique opportunities within that space, or is that something you know, you're still seeing play out? Yes, I think tech is a little bit like the flip of energy. If last year's sort of investment thesis was, in some ways, buy energy embodied in value, sell growth embodied mm -hmm. in tech, I think both of those things are still true, but less. It's all sort of coming into that muddy middle where energy is a positive risk reward, but maybe not a top position. And I think technology is a negative risk reward, but probably not a bottom laggard. And if you wanted, and I said this this morning to one of the portfolio managers I was talking to, if you wanted to use my consumer discretionary argument to buy some technology here that was intrinsic value to you, I wouldn't argue. Right. And I do think that there's spots in technology that really do look interesting that have strong valuation support, which is really semiconductors. 
So semiconductors not only are still cheap, and by cheap, I always mean bottom quartile of relative forward PE going back in history, but they are also cheap relative forward book value going back in history. It's the only part of tech that actually looks like that. It's the only part of tech that also has strong odds of outperformance based on that. So I do think that there's bots and technology that do look like a positive risk reward to mm -hmm. me. So it doesn't have to be downside leadership. Where look, I think the defense, which is expensive, has the real potential here to be downside leadership. Interesting. So semiconductors are where maybe the attention should be tilted towards. I think we'd be remiss to, you know, not talk about the bond market because not only are we now seeing some opportunities in the equity market, but we could say the same for the bond market. So we were talking about the 60-40 portfolio last time we spoke and you know, you made the comment that it could be back with a vengeance. Could you maybe just make that case for our audience here today? Because I, I think that allocation has been a bit tricky over the last year or so. I think that there is a desire to have anything that we think works over the long term to work in any short term period, too. And that's really never been true of the 60-40 portfolio. You always had to sort of look at it over a period of, let's call it three to 10 years, depending on your time horizon, to really um, get it to work in a negative correlation way. And so certainly we saw bonds and stocks actually go down in the beginning half of the year. I think based on what we just talked about, which is opportunities in the stock market, but also opportunities in the bond market, Bonds have never underperformed as much as they have in the prior two-year period in all the history that I have going back to the 60s. We also have, for the first time, this entire cycle where bond yields are fairly in line with inflation expectations when you look at it out the curve. That's usually an opportunity for bonds. And when you see inflation, actually, from a trailing perspective, start to decelerate, and I think you're starting to see all of that, usually bonds are attractive. So you now have a trifecta for opportunities in the bond market as well, which doesn't, doesn't mean that rates are never going to go up. But it wouldn't be a surprise to me, based on what I'm seeing in the data, that they don't go up any meaningful amount over the course of the next six to 12 months. And maybe that gives the bond market a time to digest and we see positive returns in both stocks and bonds. And the 60-40 portfolio does the flip of what it just did, which is you still don't get the negative correlation, but it's actually you get the positive performance to make up for the negative performance that you just looked through in your portfolio. Absolutely. So you're getting positive correlation on both, which actually is going to be a benefit to us this year, which would be great. <laughs> Right. We had some interesting news, and I know we're running out of time here, but some interesting news this week on Tuesday, Biden had signed the Inflation Reduction Act. And I know our advisors are curious as to what your initial thoughts on that bill are and what impact it could potentially have on both inflation and the equity markets. Yes, with the exception of what we saw during the pandemic, in some ways, my bias is whatever government package you insert is usually not enough to move the market any meaningful amount. So I would say that this wasn't enough to offset earnings. This wasn't enough to meaningfully change inflation. This isn't enough to, there were some negatives for capex, especially in the minimum tax, but not enough negatives to offset any kind of capex cycle that we're likely to see. So sure, it was an, an act and a big act and one we've been waiting for for a long period of time, but it wasn't as much of a market mover I think is what we might have seen two years ago if it were to be done then. 
So I still think that government spending X some very specific instances, like we saw during the pandemic, shouldn't be the basis for your investment rationale or your investment decisions. That's completely fair. And I'm told we have time for one more quick question. So just thoughts on gold. I know our viewers here are really interested to get your perspective, but also maybe to understand why it's not pricing higher than it currently is. Yeah, I think, well, because I, I think energy, right? So remember that as much as we want to make gold into a currency, I mean, it really hasn't acted like that with, you know, other than very specific times in history. So mm -hmm. the correlations to inflation, deflation, interest rates, real interest rates, all of that, it happens during times, but really the longer correlation that's really the driver is commodities. So I think it doesn't surprise me at all that you've seen energy come off over the last peak to drop, maybe six weeks, eight weeks. Um, doesn't surprise me at all that gold has sort of parroted that from a lower base. So I think that there's risk reward opportunities in energy. I think that the risk reward is the same in gold, but I think that there are better places to be in the equity market. Completely makes sense. We have covered a lot of uh, different areas today. I really appreciate you being here. Appreciate your insights as always. So hopefully we'll see you soon. For anyone that wants to hear more about Denise's uh, thoughts or insights, please feel free to follow her on LinkedIn as well. Thanks so much for joining us today. See you soon. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.